Well, it's good to be God's people together. Amen? Amen. Well, this evening we're going to take a break from the book of Acts for no other reason than I like this psalm and I just kind of felt like it felt right for the night. So would you turn to the book of Psalms in the middle of your Bible? You can grab one in the seat back in front of you or swipe there. Psalm 57. While you're turning there, I'll let you know one thing. We're basically talking about what we just sang, and we're basically talking about what Amy just read. But it's within the context of a really desperate and disastrous and troubled situation. Yet we have this ancient poem that is bearing witness to a hope and a light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. So while you're still turning and swiping there, we're going to be looking at Psalm 57. I got to tell you something super cheesy and silly, but I feel like it's time to confess something to you. As your pastor, I got to tell you that in college and still kind of to this moment, I was obsessed and am obsessed with zombie movies. Is this a safe place? Everyone is like, yeah, dude, we know this, but I don't think you knew how obsessed I was. In seminary, I wrote a 12-page paper on a Christian view of zombie cinema. I'm pretty sure that no one had ever graded a paper like that before. And I'm pretty sure nobody had said cinema when speaking of zombies or films. But I sure tried to stretch that sucker out as long as I could to 12 pages. But I was so obsessed with zombie movies, and Amy was so hating zombie movies... That she wouldn't watch them, but she would have to listen to me at least talk about them. So we started dating in college, and this was like the peak of my zombie obsession. And so I would begin to talk to her about, you know, what would you do, Amy? What would you do when the zombie apocalypse hits? And I'm a Christian, and I'm not sure that it will, but I'm, you know, stranger things have happened. But what would you do? Now... Amy looked at me square in the eye and says, I would lie down and I would be a zombie buffet. I would let them take me and I would go see Jesus as fast as I could. And I will tell you that I did not enjoy this answer. I didn't abide by this answer. So I said, if we're together and this thing hits, we need to keep it moving. We need to be trained and ready for such a time as this. And so what happened is I began to train her. How, you ask? I'll tell you. Take, for instance, the more than three or four times that we would be leaving my apartment and I'm locking my door and we're going to be heading to one of our vehicles to go get something to eat. I would lock the door and I would say, 10, 9, 8. And she knew it's training time. And she would start to run to her vehicle with her keys. And she had a 10 second head start before my snarling zombie self would chase her down into the parking lot and see if she could get in the car before I got to her. I could not abide by the fact that she would just lay down and become a zombie lunchable. And so what ended up happening is every time we did it, every time we did it, she was a zombie lunchable. She crippled 
down, she fell, and I got to thinking that I thought there were two biological responses to a threat, zombie or otherwise. Fight or what? Flight. She was living, breathing proof of a third option that some of you may have heard. It starts with an F. Are you familiar with this? Freeze. I thought it was fight or flight. I thought it was punch him in the mouth or get out of dodge. And she collapses in the parking lot. My neighbors are wondering, who is this guy? Do we need to call someone? And I was convinced that we needed to get this worked out. Well, now I'm going to offer you a fourth biological response, and it's the focus of what we're talking about. You will guess it. It's another F. It's focus. Not fight, not flight, not freeze. I said, Amy, take the key. Focus on the key. Put it in your 1998 Honda Civic. Open the handle. Get inside. Start the vehicle. Focus. You can do it. It's really a ridiculous way of getting at zeroing in on what matters most in the face of danger and threat. And this intro went about as well and cheesy as I thought. So let's move on and talk about zeroing in on what matters most. Amy, you'll be trained this week. Brace yourself. This evening, we're talking about zeroing in on what matters most, real focus and real trouble. That's my cheesy intro. Here's the real intro. A behavioral scientist named Winifred Gallagher got a cancer diagnosis and decided she had a choice to make, that this diagnosis would dictate every step of every week, of every month of her life, where she would go about the business of focusing on what matters most and living her life. She writes this in her book called Wrapped, Attention and the Focused Life. Your life who you are, what you think, feel, and do, what you love is the sum of what you focus on. If you could just stay focused on the right things, your life would stop feeling like a reaction to stuff that happens to you and become something that you create. Not a series of accidents, but a work of art. The circumstances in which David finds himself that is probably the historical background for Psalm 57 is the exact time to fight or flee or freeze. But instead we have a psalm, a poem, a record, a prayer that is a poem of focus, of getting his eyes onto what matters most. And I think that David, if he were here, he would say, yeah, my life, in all of the trouble and suffering and pain and brokenness, my life is what I give my attention and focus on, which is exactly why I'm focusing on a God who is bigger than my circumstance. But the reality is, whether it's a silly zombie thing or a cancer diagnosis or whatever it is that has brought you to this moment that you're thinking through and waiting through that's been weighing on you this week, you have a choice. And it's not to explain the pain and suffering or threat away, but it is to shift your gaze to the mountains where your help comes from. And this is the task 
and the attentiveness that God is calling us so that we can believe the words we sing in a culture and a Christianity that is so unmoored and unrooted from a story and a God that is stronger than darkness and over our circumstance. So tonight's big idea is that when pain, struggle, or suffering narrows our focus, the invitation is to focus on the narrow. We'll explain what that means in our time, but for now I'd like to read Psalm 57 and let David give us the examples of what he's focusing on. So as I read this this evening... I want you to listen for a word or phrase that resonates with you, that connects with you. And later on, we're going to talk about how the Psalms love repetition. If you're thinking about songs we sing, poems we read, poems you hear, songs you hear, think about how repetition is a way of underlining, highlighting, drawing your focus, drawing your attention on what matters most. So when pain, struggle, or suffering narrows our focus, when it's all we can see. We want to freeze. We want to fight. We want to react. The invitation is to focus on something bigger, better, beyond ourselves, even in the midst of our difficulty. Psalm 57 says this. You'll notice a superscription that gives you an idea that this psalm could have been rooted in 1 Samuel chapter 22 or 24 when David was in a cave and on the run, not from a zombie, but from a king, Saul, who was seeking his life. Verse 1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until the destroying storms pass by. I cry to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame those who trample on me. God will send forth his steadfast love and his faithfulness. I lie down among lions that greedily devour human prey. Their teeth are spears and arrows, their tongues sharp swords. Can we pause there? And you may not feel what it's like to have someone coming after you to inflict physical pain or harm, but perhaps you have felt the sting of words that have gone out like sharp swords. And you can't control the narrative. You can't control their view of the situation. You can't control their sense of your reputation. And so you feel completely unprotected. You want to be vindicated, but there's really not much you can do. And so you have a physical threat. You have a relational threat. But really, you have an invitation to do what you can and let God do what you can't. And what David is doing is crying out, keeping it moving, and focusing on God. Verse 6, excuse me, verse 5. This is the chorus of the song. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. 
My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my soul. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is as high as the heavens. Your faithfulness extends to the clouds. Here's the chorus again. Be exalted, O God, above the earth. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say thanks be to God. When pain, struggle, or suffering narrows our focus, focus on the narrow What I mean narrowing our focus is that our circumstances have this way of telling us what God is or isn't like. Our circumstances, when they're painful, difficult, broken, and we're struggling, and we're tempted to fight, flight, or freeze, our circumstances have this way of telling us what God can or can't do. We can let our circumstances dictate our reality. We can let a cancer diagnosis or a threat on our reputation in our life say, this is it, this is all there is. Or we can look our circumstances in the eye without diminishing or dodging them and trust that God is not done and that this is not the end. Why I love the Psalms and why we so often return to the Psalms is because they're the prayer book for God's people that gives us permission to lay it all out on the line and not lie about the fact that our life stinks sometimes. The Christian response is not to diminish our brokenness and our hurt and our hang-ups and the difficulty that surrounds us. A Christian response is to not come alongside a brother or sister, whether they're David hiding out in a cave for fear of his life or your friend who's just lost a loved one. The response is not, well, God works in mysterious ways. Well, that person's in a better place. The Christian response is to say, I know that, but I want that person at the dinner table with me tonight. The Christian response, whether it's psalms or lamentations, is to hold enough space to reckon with the reality that we live in and amongst a broken place. And so the Christian response is to look it in the eye, but then to also take the next step. And this is where Buddhism that has this beautiful, noble truth that says life is suffering. They don't go far enough because life is suffering, life is struggle, but Christians take it the next step and say, but suffering doesn't get the last word. David writes this psalm and loads it with the repetition of mercy and refuge. And God is exalted over this. Somehow, even though my circumstance hasn't changed, I have this sense that there is a deeper reality and a loftier reality that enables me to say, this stinks, 
This is suffering, but the Psalms say, but I am stubborn in my hope to say that this is not the end. What the Psalms do at least is this. Because it's the prayer book of God's people, the Psalms say, number one, you are not alone. You are not the first to feel like someone is attacking you. You're not the first to feel like there's nothing you can do to dictate and control the circumstance. So you lob it all up to God to say, help me, help me, help me. Did you notice how many times David asked God for something? And did you notice how many times toward the end of the psalm, because these psalms always close with a pledge or a vow, God, if you would do this, here's all the things I'm going to do. Look and note how many times David says, I will, I will, I will. It's this sense of partnership. I'm not alone. I'm going to tell others. I'm going to bear witness to the fact that you can get me through this. So the Psalms tell us, number one, that we're not alone. But number two, as it says on the slide, God is not done. This is not the end. We can let our circumstances tell us what God is or isn't like, or we can focus on who we know God to be. The reason why I'm talking about focus and the reason why I'm trying to make this connection that I see here on every verse of Psalm 57 is that you see baked within it what David has done in focusing on the narrow And what he's focused on is at least these three things. Who he knows God to be, what he knows God can do, and where he knows God is. These are the reflection questions. You can catch these in a moment. Let's go back to how David focuses on the narrow. And he says, when all around this threat, I'm literally in a cave He narrows his focus, and you see this baked within this psalm. He narrows his focus on who he knows God to be. You might look at it if you have it open, this repetition early on when he says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. You don't ask God for mercy if God is not merciful. This is one of the central tenets of the Jewish people woven throughout the Old Testament that God is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Repetition is the psalmist's way of underlining and highlighting and putting a guitar solo under it so your ears perk up and you're aware that if we're asking for mercy, it must mean that God is merciful. And you notice then in verse 1 that he is taking refuge in him. And when pain has narrowed his focus and he's in a circumstance, in a situation that cannot be fixed overnight, he moves his soul and his self, his fiber of his being, into a place of finding refuge in God. You see that repeated as well. But he also asks and trusts what God can do. I love verse 3 because verse 3 personifies 
this idea that steadfast love and faithfulness are like couriers or messengers that are coming at the dawn to tell David, I've heard you and I'm with you. And here's what I'm giving to you. If you look closely at verse 3, the language that's baked within it is that God will send forth his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And I think the reason why Psalm 57 has been on my mind is because last week in the message that Pastor Bud shared, that if you missed, we don't have the video up, but we have the audio up. And I strongly encourage you to take a look because in that 24 minutes, you have a real life story where God's faithfulness is a fingerprint marked on every moment and every minute of his journey the last nine and a half months with a double lung transplant. And so the question I've been living with is, how have I experienced and greeted the messenger of God's steadfast love and God's faithfulness? What does it look like to experience God's faithfulness? It's something we sang about last week. But how do you know that God is faithful? Because we read it in Psalm 57? Or do you have a story in the last season, three months or six months, where you can say, I know that God is faithful because God's faithfulness arrived at my doorstep and I know what he can do, not in theory, but in practice. Does anyone have a story like this tonight? Can you think of this moment? Because I think part of the problem with a Christianity that's unmoored and untethered, that the moment circumstance comes, they say God must not be good. It's because they're not rooted and steeped in the experience of a steadfast love that is so much deeper than you could think your way into. It's so much deeper, God's faithfulness than something you can hear me talk about. My hope and my invitation is that we are a people that have a personal encounter with the God who can send you and steep you in a love that roots you no matter what comes your way. My hope is that you have in your memory bank and in your bones a tangible moment on the calendar when you said, I know God's faithful because he was faithful then. And what's powerful about the Psalms and the circumstances like David's or Bud's is that it is almost always precisely in the soil of difficulty. I had this thought from a spiritual director this past week who he and I were talking about the wilderness and how unpleasant it is. And he said, I had this thought. We always perceive Jesus at the end of his 40 days in the wilderness as being at his weakest, right? The angels attended to him. Maybe they brought him a Big Mac and were like, here, man, You've earned it, bro. But he said, what if at the end of the 40 days of the wilderness, Jesus wasn't at his weakest, he was at his strongest. Because he was put into a place of greatest focus and reliance upon his father. I have never conceived of how the struggle and suffering of a cave 
or a wilderness or what you experienced this week might be the place and the soil where God's steadfast love and faithfulness strengthens you in its deepest way. But it seems to me that great love and great suffering are the tools that God has used for his people throughout the millennia to form us into a people who can really say with confidence something like, be exalted. Did you notice I said this was the chorus? If you look at verse 5, it's repeated in verse 11. David can say, be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Can I tell you a silly way that I pray? It's not silly. It's, it's, a, it's a way that I've never told anybody I pray. We pray the Lord's Prayer pretty much every week in our church because I just have this thought that, you know, lowest hanging fruit, if our kids graduate elementary school having memorized the Lord's Prayer, we could do worse, right? And Carla and the team do an amazing job steeping them in the stories, but I would really love for them to be able to have this prayer in their back pocket because if you pray that once during the day, you've prayed really well. And so one of the ways that I like to pray is to take the Lord's Prayer and then kind of riff on it. So I'd say something like, Our Father, and then I'd kind of start guitar soloing. I'm a guitar player. That's the second time I've mentioned it. And so this is where I'm at right now. Our Father, Holy Father, God in the heavens, creator and sustainer. If you've ever done the TNC daily prayer, which you can find on our sermons and resources page, it's a written out guide and you can hear me talk a long time about it in a podcast. Just get the guide and just pray your way into it. But one of the things you'll see is a way of praying the Lord's prayer like this. Well, the reason I bring this up is because the next line, it says, hallowed be your name. We're trying to get our kids to memorize the Lord's Prayer. Do they know what the word hallowed means? Do we know what the word hallowed means? Do we? Man, if Mark Sweet was here, he would be raising his hand and giving it to me right now. Do we know what hallowed means? You know it. Hallowed ground? Like, what is it? Holy. Holy. Set apart. Be your name. The way I pray it is this, and it's a lot like verse 5. May your name be exalted far and above every other name. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a banner under which we live and move and have our being. What would the people of God look like if we lived that prayer? To elevate and exalt the name of God, all that God stands for, over and above every other name. Let the reader understand. Let those with ears to hear understand there is no other name in our political place, in our nation and geography that should be elevated above. There is no other flag that should be elevated higher than the name of God. And how would our lives and our church be transformed if that was the banner that was exalted over and above all in our circumstance and we lived in light of it. How would your circumstance this week 
be affected because that's the reminder of where God is. He's not only exalted, but he is with us and near us. And that's why I love the repetition of the word awake. Wake up. Pay attention. Understand that this is where God is. Within reach, fingerprints dusting in our everyday life. And we can wake ourselves up to this reality if we would just focus on the narrow precisely who God is and what he's done. There's a story that uh, I've probably shared before, but I was thinking about it when I'm hearing this word, awake, wake up, pay attention, focus. God is with us. Don't let your circumstance dictate your reality to the degree that you miss what God is doing. And I have permission to share this because this was a stranger that I met in another state, and we were in a small group cohort at a church gathering. And we were in this space talking about pain and suffering. And the entire time, I'm feeling it differently because the gentleman that I'm sitting next to and processing these things with is paralyzed. And he's paralyzed not at birth, but because of a traumatic accident. So he's sitting there in the wheelchair, and suddenly, whatever I was talking about with pain and suffering kind of took on a different hue. And the reality is, what's the difference between stubbing your toe and breaking your leg? I mean, it still hurts, but there are some kinds of hurts, not to say that your stubbed toe doesn't matter, but just has a different character and quality, and sometimes we do well to just listen. And so I was listening to him share this story about shortly after he gets paralyzed, he was in a deep, dark depression, and he's meeting with a mentor after a lot of Christians had done their best to try to diminish or minimize his pain. And this mentor said, look, you have a choice. You can keep sinking down or you can sit with Jesus and pray for a moment of clarity asking, would you give me something that would serve as one of those lifesavers, you know what I mean? The red, the red lines, the white, that you can think about, you can focus on, you can be reminded of, and see it in your heart, sitting on the top of the waves. So when you're sinking down, you can recall this. You can focus on it because you've put it on your bathroom and on your desk and on the mirror. And so whenever you're in that moment, what's the thing that you focus on that is drifting up there that you're able to grab and it pulls you up and out? And this is different from the Pollyanna-ish thing to say, well, this is fine that I'm drowning. No, no, no. It's a wake-up call that says, maybe, just maybe, God is with me and within arm's reach. And the thing he said that came to him as the donut was Philippians chapter 2, which is the famous passage in which God, who is exalted, God the Son, did not consider equality with God the Father something to be exploited and used to his own advantage. Instead, he became nothing. He became vulnerable. He could not walk as an infant child in Bethlehem. And this person in his wheelchair said, 
my lifesaver, my lifeline was that Christ became paralyzed for me. And the beauty of his story is that it didn't always work the first time when he brought his attention and focus to the reality of a servant who would experience helplessness, paralysis, vulnerability. But he said if he would zero in and focus enough, eventually it would take root in his heart and elevate him and lift him once again. Christ became paralyzed for me. That was his lifeline. For David, it's steadfast love. It's faithfulness. It's focus and attentiveness. Wake up. God is here. The dawn has come. I'm going to be singing about God's faithfulness at some point soon. But the reality is, David's circumstance didn't exactly change momentarily. There's a famous scene in 1 Samuel 24 that could have been the inspiration for this psalm when it got written down. That instead of fighting Saul, and instead of fleeing once again to the next place, and instead of freezing and doing nothing, he was awake enough to find this fourth route, and he just clipped the hem of Saul's garment while Saul was alone and using the bathroom. And it was this creative, generative moment to try to move forward. But the reality is Saul just got worse. And so the invitation for us as we close is to understand that though your circumstance may not change, where we put our focus in this moment and the next and the next matters for our experience of God's faithfulness and love. So who do you know God to be? What is the narrowest of narrow when everything gets distorted? Who do you know that you know God to be? I would encourage you to sit with that, even for the next few moments or sometime this week. What do you know that God can do? Because you can point to a calendar and said, if he did it that time, just maybe, he'll do it again. In our church, we say that we pray believing God can. That's baseline. So often we grew up in churches that said, you know, if it be your will, I mean, he's probably not going to do it. Start by praying, believing that God can. God can, actually. Actually can. Then you ask that God will. But you trust that God loves you no matter what. Because Jesus, in his deepest, darkest circumstance, didn't get his prayer answered the way he wanted. But he trusted that God's will and that God's love was for him and with him. So when the cup didn't pass from him, he still went through the cross, through death. He became the suffering servant for us that he might defeat death through death. And that's why we can 
sit with the last question, where do you know God is? The answer is with you in your suffering and circumstance. For you in your suffering and your circumstance. And he's forming you when we focus our heart and our attentiveness and our attention on him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your presence here in us and among us and working through us in our families and neighborhoods and relationships. It's not lost on us that there are people in this room that are at this moment in the middle of a circumstance that has distorted and narrowed their focus and they don't know what Monday will look like. I pray that something of Psalm 57 resonated and intersected as a word of hope for them to focus on. I pray that the risen Christ, as he did on the other side of the cross, would go ahead of them. The resurrected Christ going ahead of the disciples who are fearful and worried and wondering what the next step will be. Would the risen Christ go ahead of them into that situation, into that meeting, into that moment, into that circumstance, so that when they arrive, they will have arrived at a place where you have already been working and giving them the resources they need so that they can know that the darkness is trembling because the presence of Christ goes before them and behind them and around them and that surely goodness and mercy is following close behind. We pray now for Toby who is dealing with a family situation with her father that has been in declining health. We pray that your goodness and mercy would surround and sustain them. Would you give her wisdom and peace? We pray for those who are sick and struggling that we are aware of. And we pray, Lord, that they would look to you and focus on who they know you to be, what you can do, and that you are right near to them. We thank you for this time together. We ask that you would bless and keep us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go out into the world and in your words and in your lives bear witness to the Christ who has ascended to be everywhere present with us in the valleys and green pastures, walking with us each step. And as you come to know Christ, our shepherd, May God give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. May Christ Jesus lift up his hands and bless you. And may the spirit open to you all the riches of God's unfailing love. Go in peace.